Kia ora and welcome. I'm Bernard Hickey and this is the Kaka and the Weekly Who, where I sit down with someone who is just as much of a tragic on, on the political economy as me. And we talk about what's been the big events in the, the, the world of New Zealand's political economy. And I couldn't think of a better person to start, start this off than Thomas Coughlin, who is an old colleague. Well, I'm not saying old, he's actually much younger. From, from Newsroom, we've worked together there several years ago. Thomas obviously is a senior political correspondent with stuff here in the Parliamentary Press Gallery and is about to head to the, the Herald. Congratulations on that, Thomas. Thanks, Bernard. Excited. Great to have you here in our grey padded cell of a, a studio here in, <laughs> in, in Wellington. But plenty of juicy news on the housing, transport, uh, infrastructure financing, uh, culture wars... Uh, front, none more so than the big announcement today about the Upgrade Programme. For those people who don't know what the Upgrade Programme was or how it came about, can you give us a, a, a quick history lesson? Well, the, quick, the quick history lesson is that it came about, it was put together in, in late uh, 2019. The government was, had, was, was facing difficulties around its reputation for delivery back then. KiwiBuild was in crisis, the light rail in Auckland was sort of collapsing. So Grant Robertson decided he'd, he'd loosen his self-imposed debt target, which gave him a little bit of uh, wiggle room, billions of dollars of wiggle room, to fund some infrastructure projects which he thought would, would, would help them, the, the party electorally in the 2020 election. So they, they packed this $12 billion programme with $6.8 billion worth of transport projects, announced them in January, 20, uh, January 29, 2020. I was having a look at the history of it today, and, and, and back then there were just 1,700 new COVID cases announced all over the world that day. So it, was a very, it, was a different, it was a different world back then. Uh, and since that time, obviously, they've all been vastly over budget, which brings us to today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was at that, that same announcement in Auckland where it seems like a completely different era. Yeah, it, it does. I remember that, that week, I think we had what was the, the first... COVID press conference, Labour had its Brackenridge caucus retreat, which is there, always there at the start of the political year. They don't have it at Brackenridge anymore because actually Brackenridge is too small to host their enormous caucus, so that's how the, that's how the world has changed. And at the, at the Brackenridge caucus retreat, David Clark on the lawn, where everyone was out playing cricket on the lawn, having a lovely time in the sun, and uh, David Clark just gathered everyone round over by a bouncy castle where the Labour, the, the, the children of the Labour MPs were playing. And, and a few of us had questions that we wanted to ask about this thing called coronavirus. And so David Clark and Ardern had this wee sort of informal press conference in the beautiful white Arthur Arthur Sun talking about uh, coronavirus. And that was, that was the first ministerial press conference on it. I remember it very, very clearly. But, but I, I don't think I even asked a question because, frankly, I didn't really... Oh, those were the days. Those were the days. Yeah. Well, but still the same project. So they announced on that day in January in Auckland 2020 the go-ahead for something called the Mill Road Project, which, if you're outside Auckland, probably doesn't mean much, but actually is this was supposed to be this four-lane monster of a road or brilliant thing of a road depending on who you are <laughs> uh, that went beside the motorway and essentially made it really easy to get around Papakura, Drury, those sorts of areas really is, was the sort of beating heart 
of getting around South Auckland, making it possible to add uh, 120,000 people, 30,000, 40,000 houses, and everyone was focused on Mill Road. The opposition had promoted it as one of their big projects. Was it in the roads of national significance? Um, I'm not sure. I think most of them were, but I'm not sure about Mill Road. I think that it was. I think it was, but I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not clear on that particular detail. I know Judith loves it now. Uh, <laughs> it's right in her electorate. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this was a big deal, and there was a whole bunch of developers, Kiwi Property, and a couple of others who had these great plans for industrial, residential, commercial use, and they wanted to rezone that land for that. The Auckland Council um, needed to spend a billion dollars on roads and footpaths and parks and all the things you need around the housing and the transport to make a new suburban area work. Trouble was, though, that Phil Goff is worried about his balance sheet. His He says he's at debt limits. He's got a double-A credit rating, but he <laughs> says that, you know, we can't borrow anymore, and therefore he didn't want to spend the billion dollars. So this project was in a sort of a holding pattern, in part because earlier this year, Waka Kotahi, the NZTA, knocked on the door at Grant Robertson's office and Michael Wood's office and said, ah, you know that... $6.8 billion we said these projects were going to cost. What did they say? Well, they, they said that those those $6.8 billion worth of projects were going to cost an additional $6 billion. So that would take the whole package to twelve. Wumfa! Where did that come dollars. from? I mean, it's incredible. I was thinking, again, going back to when it was announced, when it was announced, net core crown debt stu- stood at just under $60 billion. So these, these cost overruns equate to 10% of all net debt at the time that they were, the projects were announced. Obviously, now we've got considerably more debt thanks to COVID. But the the the, the cost overruns are probably the, the largest and most profound cost overruns we've seen in any transport project in recent memory. I mean, Transmission Gully is the other big white elephant that went from eight hundred million dollars to one point two million dollars. This Mill Road uh, that, that you were just talking about, Bernard, that's gone from one point three billion dollars, which so is already the most expensive road that Waka Kotahi had, had decided to build when it was announced, and that's gone from one point three to three point five billion dollars, which is a I mean it's one percent of GDP just on a on a twenty one kilometre four <laughs> <laughs> It's a staggeringly expensive road. And I, it, I mean, it always it, was, and now it now is even more so. Maybe they should have just paved it with gold. Yeah, you know, I, gold the gold price hasn't gone up much lately. Well, you know, we're, we're, they are blaming it on supply chains. So you, you think maybe at, at what point does it become more cost effective to start paving things in gold than asphalt? <laughs> well, or maybe just you know giving everyone an electric bike. I've always I've always wanted to do the numbers. Actually, if you've got um, six point eight billion dollars, six point eight billion dollars. So not just million, but billion dollars divided by two thousand dollars for an electric bike. You could give three hundred and forty thousand electric bikes away wow. for that for that amount. That's that's you know a third of Auckland's population. If you wanted to really yeah, get totally. get that going, I, I think they should go to Wellingtonians first. I think our need for electric <laughs> uh, the, right. the hills mean that we we True. have priority. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other reason that the price had blown out it's not just the concrete and the steel and the pipes and the 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 new. But actually, the price of buying the land around these roads suddenly went up 
because we had an explosion in house prices. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the irony, right? It's the government. The government is just the latest victim of its own housing crisis, which you know, as a millennial, I have a lot of sympathy for. Uh, <laughs> although somewhat less sympathy when the government is obviously you know at the levers of the economy, so it can't exactly say that it, it is. It is completely a victim of of the cost of land, which which it has absolutely uh, a lot of uh, it has a, a lot of levers to pull to adjust the cost of land. It is reluctant to to pull those levers, like do a proper wealth tax, a land like, tax. Yeah, or do, you know, do anything. <laughs> yeah, or for example, and here's a great way to do it, and this is something that in theory councils are looking at but haven't quite done yet, which is to when you change the zoning of a piece of land or you you know decide that a motorway is going to go right next to it. You essentially say, okay, we know the price of land's going to go up and you're going to get this manna from heaven, free money, so to speak, for your bit of land. What we're going to do is capture a chunk of that um, capital growth in your land simply because we've changed the lines on the map. And these ratings uplift ideas have, have yet to be really yeah. used, but it would be a great way to do it. Oh, I think they're going to start using them for the Auckland Light Rail project, which obviously, I mean, the, the, when you think about the, the value uplift for that for that project right down you know, Dominion Road all the way to the airport, that will be, that, 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 will, that will uplift the value of land around it considerably when it, when it, if, if it ever gets built, when it gets built. So they think that, I think they are actually looking at that um, as a way of, 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 of recouping some of the costs of, of that project. Of course, the irony, I think, is that a lot of the land around the Auckland Light Rail um, route is actually owned by the council and the government. So the ah. state housing <laughs> so like, you know, <laughs> order. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so you're good, taking from good, one hand. Good, happy days. And the reason that the government has decided to today announce the cancellation, effectively, of that big four-lane mill road and the decision to put a couple of extra railway stations in there, also to cancel a big chunk of a most highly desired highway in uh, Tauranga, which was going to go, essentially um, allows people to go around the back of Tauranga between Waihi and Papamoa uh, Tepuki, and a uh, very um, dangerous road at the moment, and it's a really hot topic in Tauranga. I mean, mm. if you want to get elected in Tauranga, you need mm. to say that you love that road. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. that you'd build it yourself if you had a chance. And that's the same with the Otaki Road. I think Chris Bishop has apparently OAA some information which says it would save 100 and something lives over over the first five years of operation. These are these roads, I mean, you know, they, they, they are um, they, they, they're incredibly expensive, but they are also incredibly safe. Great separators. I've got the, 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 the median barriers, which we don't have along um, along much of our state highways. So that's that's always been the argument in favour of these roads, that they are staggeringly expensive, but they are also much safer than many of the um, dollar-awful roads that we currently <laughs> drive on. I know. The irony as well, I think, is that this, the, so Todong I got the X, the... the, the, the and the 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 two the, the road got the axe and the uh, the mill road got the axe. So it, it looks like the the worst thing the, the the signal for which roads got the axe was is is roads and, and electorates occupied by current or former national leaders. Oh, that's shocking! Todd, that's a Todd shocking Muller, allegation. Todd Simon Bridges, <laughs> very unlucky. Yeah, yeah. So Otaki is is gone through. So Otaki's that's that's through. one. Melling um, was looking a wee bit doubtful for a while, so. but it's been extended out a bit. Penlink. Now this is the road that goes out the Fongaproa um, Peninsula mm. in Auckland. That that's going to go ahead. In Whangarei, there's not going to be a highway from the city to Marsden Point. Instead, they're going to build a, a rail spur out there, which seems sensible enough. But the, the guts of the question, and no one really sort of asks this anymore, is, well, why didn't they just stump up the extra $6 billion? It's not like they can't afford it or they don't have it. Remember, the government's... <laughs> 
got a credit rating upgrade in February, can still borrow money at 1.62%. The cost of borrowing is less than 1% of GDP. And let's not forget, it actually has $40 billion sitting there in cash in its account. Can you imagine having a bank account, Thomas, with $40 billion in it? You know, you open up your banking app, Grant looks at his banking app every day and says, ah, $40 billion. what should I do with that? I'll do nothing with it. <laughs> and, and, you know, as, as a millennial, I would love to have a bank account of any significance whatsoever. <laughs> I, you know, well, you could buy I'd love to owe money. I'd love to owe money to someone. Oh. If, I, if I owed money to myself, even better. <laughs> well, what I love at the moment, though, is that the price of avocados is quite low. Yeah, it's, and, and the season's been extended. I, I was actually looking for a little, sometimes, you know, to just to, to write a sort of trolley column. I was looking to, to work out the value of the avocado industry in New Zealand and, 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 and relate that to house price inflation. And, you know, sure enough, house prices have gone up by many magnitudes of, of what the avocado industry is worth in New Zealand, which is actually is quite a small industry. I think there's room to grow. Well, I would Not read, as fast as house prices. I would read that column. <laughs> <laughs> I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> Onwards and upwards on the infrastructure funding front to water. Oh. So the government has an awful lot of reform on its plate. It's got RMA reform. It's got three waters reform. It's got local government financing reform. It's got DHB reform. Have I missed any out there? I don't think so. No, that's no, it. Basically, that is it. Uh, yeah, so health. Did you say health? Health. You said health. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're still doing the education stuff. Yeah, you know. so they're yeah, doing education, health, local government, water, which is sort of local government, RMA. Yeah, there, there, and there have been, been rumours about sort of doing transport reform as well, so just to create sort of like an... But, you know, this is unconfirmed rumours, but, but a lot of sort of looking at, at creating an Auckland transport-style organisation for, for places like Wellington. Oh, isn't that NZTA? Um, oh, I see. I, like, oh, yeah, right. like the, you know... Yeah, that would get Wellington moving. Wellington, uh, would anything? <laughs> so, <laughs> the tectonic so, plates will get Wellington Yeah, moving, yeah. Right? <laughs> the city. Anyway, so what we heard this week from Nanaya Mahuta, who really is turning into one of the powerhouses in cabinet, a a quiet achiever. What I call yeah. she has a, a strategy I call the thousand cups of tea strategy, which is she does a lot of stuff behind the scenes. She mm. meets lots of mayors. She talks to lots of people. Isn't the sort of big splashy? Quite different to her predecessor in the farm. <laughs> That's right. And she's, a thousand she's, cups of something, but I don't think yeah, it was tea. You know, really out there throwing the quips around and thundering from a heights. But she has managed to keep the local government sector quiet until now with the Three Waters proposals, which on the face of it are just pure political landmines. I mean, everywhere you step, you've got a mayor saying those bastards in Wellington are trying to rip us off. But actually, so far that hasn't happened. She, just to recap, Three Waters is about the government trying to get the council, 67 of them, to group together their water assets. Because as we found this week with a new set of documents from the uh, Scottish Water Authority, uh, the estimate is over the next 30 years, the, the we'll have to invest anywhere between $120 billion and $185 billion, I think it is, oh. in new water infrastructure. And of course, catching up on the underinvestment over the last 30 years because it looks like most councils um, have not invested the depreciation that they declared on their accounts. Yeah, well, looking at you, looking at you, Wellington. Yeah, well, that is just, <laughs> I mean, in accounting terms, that's the ultimate in theft from well, future yeah. generations. I mean, you think if that, were a, if that were a board of a major corporation, you'd be, as a shareholder, you'd be asking some pretty serious questions. I mean, you know, that's real heads should roll territory. It's... it's yeah. It's deceitful and dishonest. Yeah. Every government, the central and local government for 30 years, that's been not just an accident, that's strategy. 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it worked. Yeah, well, Until no one now. likes rate rises. <laughs> no, but, that's but, right. but you also don't like poo in the streets, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. So $185 billion, and this is Nanaimo who's just saying to the councils, ah, you're going to have to stump up with this money over the next 30 years, and it's going to be incredibly expensive, and the rates increases will be thousands of dollars. Unless, of course, you choose my plan, which is to roll those 67 yes. water authorities into, we think, three or four. That seems to be the... the What's the Churchill flavor. quote? Talk quietly, talk quietly and carry a big, big stick. stick. So this is a $185 billion stick. That's right. And you reported um, today that she hasn't yet started thundering about making it compulsory, but that's still a possibility, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, these reforms have been going on for a while. They sort of grew out of the Havelock, Havelock North uh, scandal, which I think was 2016, that, 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 that the report was done to that and, and the previous national government was obviously going to have to respond to it in some way. Uh, uh, that was um, 5 BC, five years before COVID. Five years before <laughs> COVID, exactly, by, by, by a, new, uh, a, new, uh, a new time reckoning. But, but the, the Labour, Labour picked it up, obviously, and, and their reform programme, which has sort of been, been um, rolling away in the background, has always been about opting in. Councils have always kind of had, had the option to opt in. That sort of slowly matured into a potentially an opt-out scenario. And and I actually saw saw some reporting from John O'Mill on newsroom about about the potential of the potential of, of councils being forced into these reforms. So I thought, oh, actually, I'll, I'll just go up to um, Nanaya Mahuta on the bridge and just ask her whether she could. You know, I I, I hate playing this game. It's it's uh, that that classic journalistic game of the rule out rule in rule out game. So, so <laughs> well, you should be working well, at TV Three, Thomas, <laughs> or or CNN, or as CNN. it's called now. <laughs> yeah, so I. I, I I played the rule out game, and 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 Nanaya would not would not rule out rule out compelling compelling councils to to enter these water reforms, and obviously that's her prerogative. So I, I mean I think they've done they've made a very strong case so far. DIA has been doing this roadshow of, of councils for for years for a, a year of what these reforms could cost, what 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 it would cost to to not. Go through with the reforms, so they've been really trying to trying to encourage councils to. So many sign up. PowerPoint presentations. So many power. I know you know I've seen one of them. That I've seen two of them now. They're very they're very compelling PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> One hundred eighty five billion dollars is that that's more than than what Netcor Crown debt is expected to peak at. I think, or roughly the same as what Netcor Crown debt is expected to peak at post COVID. So you know that's. A, a truly for everything. So, so all of our government borrowing is expected to peak at that amount, and that's what we need to spend on just water in the next thirty years. And 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 Mahuta makes the case that no council, no council can afford to do that, um, particularly not small councils, which are possibly going to be the most um, hesitant to jump in because they've got a, a particular problem. Their populations aren't growing, but they've got all these networks, mm. and when people leave a town, they leave the middle of the street and the end of the street, but there's still people on the street and they still need exactly the same number of pipes and mm. it still needs to be maintained. And in places like Japan, for example, they've got a real program of where they've had depopulation in small towns, actually you know, mopping people up and bringing them to the centre so they can turn off their pipes <laughs> out out in the suburbs of the town that's dried up. Well, the, the, the ambitions of these water reforms on that are incredible. Like, apparently, in the, 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 we're... The, our water reforms are modelled on what Scotland did about 20 years ago, and apparently in Scotland was quite similar to us. A lot of people in rural areas, and you know, Scotland's quite rural um, and, and has has quite a sparsely sort of is sparsely populated in parts. Uh, many of them were not on the central water supply. Obviously, it takes 
too much effort to, to put pipes, lay pipes to, to these people. But eventually, Scotland actually hooked up most of its residents with high quality drinking water from, from the mains. So it is this government's uh, ambition to try and do that here. But I, I mean, it, 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 you think ultra fast broadband, we did that quite well. But this is a, this is a whole other order of magnitude. Yes. Many rural towns in New Zealand and, and rural you know, people living quite far away from, from the next you know, person. Are we really going to be able to lay pipes all the way out to these places? Apparently and, we are. And, and not just lay pipes out there, but for a, a lot of towns where right now they don't really have uh, particularly wastewater mm. and uh, sewerage systems. They've got a whole bunch of uh, tanks buried in the ground. They've got um, things leaking out into the sea and the and the and the it's rivers. Not just small towns, Wellington. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is a real issue, and and over the next year it's going to come to a crunch because. Uh, Nanaia Mahuta is really keen to get one or two of these authorities up and running before oh. the council elections come October 2022. The problem is, I actually can see a mood of revolt growing out there. We've just seen long-term plan negotiations and announcements about rates increases oh. of 5, 10, 15%, depending on which part of the country you're in. And you've got, we'll talk about this in a minute, but we've got these um, culture wars brewing between suburban double cab ute drivers <laughs> versus latte sipping, avocado toast eating, electric Cycle riding right here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I've just described, you know, wokey types, and they're trying to take my city and my roads off me, and they want to stop me from buying my double cab Ute, and they're going to take up my road yeah. and put put a cycle lane there. I'm not going to let them do that. I'm going to vote for the anti-cycling rates freeze party. Yeah, I think that's, there's a. I think you're seeing that in, in, in the, the UK and the US now. The, the, the cultural wars around climate change, I think, will be. Them, them, there. It looks like there's there's a significant segment of the population who can be mined for votes on that. Mike on Hosking would rally them together, and and also his his good partner announced this week that she'd consider running for mayor. I didn't see that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I to to complain that. against all these cyclists taking the well, roads. I, I think Auckland's the big. Auckland's probably where the, the the hand blow will fall with this because the the mayor who probably stands to gain the least from the water reforms is also the mayor who Nanaia Mahuta needs the most to sign up for it, and that's Phil Goth, a very capable politician. And and the the, the papers that were released yesterday noted that actually some of the larger councils don't stand to gain much of the efficiency gains from 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 amalgamating their water supplies. Auckland has also invested quite a lot in water so it's not it's not quite as bad uh, in Auckland as it is in Wellington actually not as bad anywhere as it is in Wellington it seems but it's it's it, it doesn't there's there is less urgency for Auckland to enter into the water reforms and Phil Goth makes the point that Aucklanders probably don't want to see the assets that they have invested in put into into these entities that might later be privatized and I, I'm, I'm not sure whether Goff actually noted the irony that he was part of the government which which was very enthusiastically privatized <laughs> like this but 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 he has now you know changed his mind as, as we um, as, as everyone is allowed to do but but Auckland, I think Phil Goff has a massive. I think he will use this the, the leverage that he has. He knows that that that. I mean, it would be a terrible look if Nanaima who forced him into these reforms. It might be much better if Auckland opted in voluntarily. So it'd be interesting to see what he's able that that enormous leverage that he has and what he's able to do, to sort of squeeze out of the government as a as a as a as a as an incentive to actually enter into these reforms. Maybe a billion dollars to help him put that infrastructure in around Mill Road, those yeah, new railway wow. stations. I yeah, there's the, the, he'll be. I think he'll be able to squeeze a lot 
out of them if, yeah. if, if he's got massively bridge. Auckland's situation is played out in a smaller way around the country. Auckland, of course, in theory would be the water authority for the upper half of the North Island. So you have all of these Northland mm. towns and cities which are currently have all sorts of water problems suddenly putting their hand up and saying, oh, we'd love the ratepayers of Auckland to yeah. pay for our new water system. Uh, remember the amazing water scandal around Mungafai? The That one still uh, has to be paid for. So the, this, this carving up of the assets and the debt and the assessment about who's going to subsidise who and making sure that it's fair, it, it really is the, the key thing. The Cabinet will be making decisions apparently in the next couple of months about what the maps are going to mm. look like. Mm. So if it comes out with a map that says you're in that water authority and not on that one, then every council is going to have a really good look at their asset lists and work out, are we getting diddled here? Are we going to have to subsidise those bastards across the other side of the hill for yeah. their growth? It's, it's, it's going to be very, very messy. The, the other thing, of course, is charging, is how these, how these water entities will be funded. Yes. Obviously, the incentive here is that you, you, you um, lump all these water assets into a massive entity, which is, will be considered by the DIA said that they are talking, I think, to Standard & Poor's about, about the way that they would be rated. Uh, the local government funding agency raised some concerns about whether or not their credit ratings would be very strong because they would have um, less re- revenue-gathering powers than councils would. So the local government funding agency said, hey, you know, we <laughs> don't do this. This it is cost- so nuts. <laughs> I mean, this is nuts. This is a public asset. Eventually, a government of some sort will levy a tax and make sure the water works. And oh, yeah. the bondholder oh, totally. will get paid back. It's a total fiction. It's, it's <laughs> like, it's like and it's, I mean, how many, how many government entities are able to raise their own debt now? So NZTA, Kaiang, or uh, um, LGFA, I suppose. And you've reported in the, in the past about how that um, essentially layers on a completely pointless 60 basis points of costs, which... Over the long run, we're talking, you know, billions of dollars. Yeah, it makes, it makes absolutely no sense. But um, so the, I think the short of that is that the, the long and short of that is DIA is talking with the ratings agencies to make sure that they're very aware that these these local these little entities these big entities are on are, are not on the crown core crown balance sheet. But wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They're part of the government, so that they they get good credit ratings and, and they can borrow cheaply. But there is another option, of course. The Reserve Bank balance sheet was a subject of discussion this week. A speech from the head of financial markets, Vanessa Rayner, uh, was actually delivered by Yuong Ha, who's the chief economist and assistant governor, in which the Reserve Bank said, "Hey, you know, we've got this big balance sheet. It's now got um, sixty billion dollars worth of government bonds on it. In theory, we're going to a hundred billion, but we probably won't get there because the government's not borrowing enough, <laughs> and we don't want to." I have more than 60% of the bonds on issue. So what are we going to do with this big balance sheet? Now, the theory was they would taper it down. They'd sell those bonds back into the market to push up interest rates when was necessary. But interestingly, in the speech uh, out yesterday, and also in an interview that Janae Tiprani did with uh, Yuong Ha, it became clear the Reserve Bank would quite like to keep that balance sheet for quite some time. And they don't think they're going to get rid of it, which means essentially over time those bonds could easily be maturing and the essentially the government would pay the Reserve Bank money to uh, when the bonds matured. And then what would happen? Yeah, it was a great interview from Janae and it sort of confirmed what, what I suppose um, I, I, the market had understood, but w- which none of us had really talked about, which is that the money got round is not going to finish when the LSAT program is, is scheduled to sort of officially reach its ceiling. 
uh, this will, it, it will go on. The, the Reserve Bank is, is confirmed that it will it will go on keeping its supply of of, of government um, bonds for as long as it wants the the program to to continue. It just won't and, increase and the cap or, or will change the, the the overall level. Or maybe even look for other things to invest. The Reserve Bank saying that it would look around at assets that helped achieve its climate change ambitions. So, what sort of bonds could help you achieve climate change? Maybe the water bonds, actually, <laughs> and you know. This may be the way that we're eventually going to solve this issue where, you know, we, we can't forget that if there's another crisis and if inflation doesn't take off, the Reserve Bank uh, will be in a position, as it has been in the last year, to solve financial problems by helping the government out. I think it'll be it'll be interesting. You know, they they released their forward guidance finally for the first time uh, in a while, and with their most recent monetary policy statement, and it'll be you know they they are they they are signalling that there will be rate hikes to come. It will be interesting, I think, if they if they if 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 we see signs of inflation and they do look at tightening to see them sort of use their two levers at once. You know, obviously, in the past we've seen them use the the big lever of the official cash rate, which is a fairly sort of effective but blunt tool, and it's a single tool. Now, obviously, they've got the the official cash rate still, but they've got this this LSAT program, and they're both designed to achieve the same thing. But how do you how do you look at controlling interest rates? And, and controlling inflation using two tools at the same time when really you're looking to, to control one number effectively. It's like watching one of those rally drivers yeah. who has two feet working on the brake and the accelerator at the same time while they pull on the handbrake. It'll be, yeah, it'll be, it'll be quite incredible, I think. So saying, right, well, you know, we're going to hike by 25 basis points and we're, we're, we're going to sort of reduce the reduce our LSAT program at the same time, but not too much, but a wee bit, but not too much. But, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the 2022 bond is maturing next month. <laughs> And it'd be, yeah, it'd be very, it'd be very interesting to see them do it. And obviously, I think this this came up at the finance and, and expenditure committee last week. Greg O'Connor asked a question: you know, Has any, um, has any, any central bank successfully managed to, you know, turn off the quantitative easing tap once they've turned it on? And the answer to that is not recently. Yeah. Now you're talking about tapering there. The taper that's, tantrum. That's, that's right. And that's a dangerous thing to talk about. Fascinating. And on housing, we've got Wellington. It's and this always is, Wellington. It's always always comes back to Wellington. And this is a story that a lot of non-Wellingtonians will be surprised at. The Wellington Council has 1,900 housing units that it rents out to people on low incomes, 3,200 people. And effectively, it is a really big social housing provider. Now, this is something councils used to do a lot of around the country, and there are still some councils that do it, particularly for pensioners. But over time, many of them have gotten out of it. They might have sold their often their, their flats or handed them over to Kyanga Order. That's what happened in Auckland. I think John Banks wanted to sell them off, and Helen Clark jumped in and said, oh, that's not good. Why, don't, <laughs> why doesn't Kyanga Order take them off your hands? Well, Wellington now has a problem because They've been trying to renew their large and often quite old stock of social housing and they've fallen behind. Also, basically, they just can't keep up with the costs and now they're losing, they say, $400 million over the next decade or so and they're desperate for the government to either help help them or potentially take it off their hands. What's what's going on here? Well, I think, I, I must say, this is uh, an issue I haven't, haven't followed as closely as the others, but I, it, it looks like, again, 
it's, it's hard to apportion blame here. I mean, obviously the council is, is at fault again, but it, it also seems like this this deal that they, they signed with the government, I think in 20, 2007, it, it looked like it was a quite, a, I, think, I think it was a far-sighted deal that, that reached some decades in the future. And it's one of those things where you think, gosh, did they really know what they were signing themselves up to back then to maintain the stock like this. It does, it, it, it seems like there's... Back a, when the median house price in Wellington oh, was $173,000. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can buy a house for a fiver. But, but it, it, it looks like there is a sort of solution here, which is to access the income-related rent subsidy from the government, which the, gov- which the council cannot currently do. I think they need to convert themselves into a community housing provider or I think Kaya Ora is allowed to do it as well, obviously. But but I, just how... Just how one 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 does that is, is I must say, I don't want to speak of, of which I do not fully understand. <laughs> but but I, it, it sounds like it might be somewhat complicated. I, I think that the latest news this week is that the council is entering negotiations negotiations with the government about what to do to access that subsidy, which seems and to make I asked, a lot of um, sense. Grant Robertson about that, he was very much hinting that uh, they'd prefer a community housing provider right. pathway. I think and there's something successful like that in Christchurch. Yeah, and Nelson apparently have done something like that. So yeah, Nicola Willis, uh, the housing spokeswoman for National, is also very keen for the council to go down that route. Again, we're in a situation, but like water, where councils basically out of their depth, up to their gills in debt don't have the tools to raise revenue to deal with the infrastructure crisis built up over 30 years and after population growth of 2% per year for a decade. And the government is in a centralising mood and we're now in a situation where the government is taking assets off people, buying assets off people, <laughs> paying for infrastructure. Councils are going, here, you take <laughs> take this. I just want to go back to picking up the rubbish. Thank you very much. And having a library. Oh, unless we're in Wellington oh, where there no. is no library. And it really is a fascinating thing. Yeah, library services but no like beautiful sort of um, bureaucraties yeah, actually, I quite like the fact that we now have like three or four different libraries it's scattered around town. It's actually great if you work, as, as we do in Parliament, they've, they've opened up a satellite library at the National Library, two minutes walk away, Yeah, and you can order anything to that library for free. They, Fantastic. And it arrives in a couple of days, and then you, yeah. it takes you all of 30 seconds to, to pick it up. It's great. Yeah. Um, for, it's, um, so there you go, Wellington. Yeah, no, so it's, there are some good things about Wellington. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. Now, just to finish off, because we're, we're um, hitting the end of our time, Thomas, We've talked about some pretty heady things here. You know, we've got a central bank that's printing money. We've got uh, huge infrastructure deficits, a massive housing crisis, New Zealand with the second biggest, fastest house price inflation in the world. We've got a COVID-19 crisis. We've got Bitcoin being worth $2.5 trillion the week before last, but now worth $1.5 trillion. We've we've got got meme stocks taking off all over the place. It is a wild world out there. How is this all going to end? Why do you ask? <laughs> You're younger um, than me. You'll probably see it end. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I hope it. I hope it ends with uh, me in a warm home that 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 I own a portion of, <laughs> and the bank owns the rest of. No, I. I. It's yeah. It's 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 gloomy. I think. How does it end? I I think. You're looking at the kind of – one of the questions I often ask myself, and I love sort of – I'm an absolute tragic for New Zealand political history books, is what what did things look like in sort of the last term of the Muldoon government? Was it obvious that the sort of existing 
existing order was crumbling. And it, it looks like reading books written at the time that it, it was fairly obvious that, the, that, that the, the existing David Longy has that, that Robert Muldoon to King Canute failing to hold back the, you know, rising tide, which I think is a misreading of that story, but anyway. But, but, but and it, it does, I think it, it was very apparent then that whatever was going to come next, and, and obviously what came next was, has been sort of roundly rebuked and criticised, but, but whatever was to come next would be starkly different from what came before. And I think it's, what, what at the moment, it, it feels obvious that the existing sort of structures of the economy and, and the, the political economy are just not coping with the challenges that we have. The, 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 I mean, the water one is obvious. It's such an easy fix. It's pipes. You know, we've known this since, since Victorian times, since Roman times. The, the, the climate change one is more concerning. It looks like one of the fixes that, actually that, they, that Grant Robertson and James Shaw are working on at the moment is the way of putting climate change into our public finance infrastructure, mm. looking at measuring what this will cost us, what it will cost us to... To, to, to fix these problems if we don't act now. One of our you know, problems in New Zealand is chronic short-term thinking, largely because our, our, our government agencies aren't actually that good at looking into the future and pricing things, as we've discovered with the Upgrade Project this week. Mm. But, you know, th- th- I, think th- I think it's clear that, that sort of we might be on, on the cusp of a, of a real realignment of the way that the, the public finance system or, the, or the, you know, the, the, the political economy works in New Zealand and, and, and maybe even around the world because... The, the the I mean every government gets criticised for for failing and you know they're not all total failures but it, it seems like there are just chronic failures at so many levels of the government and society that that a wholesale kind of deconstruction is probably inevitable at some stage particularly particularly around climate change you know in the few, I mean we haven't mentioned one of the reforms they're doing is this managed retreat bill which doesn't get talked about that much which is the potentially looking at ways of, of, of bringing towns and communities away from the sea and and probably bailing out rich rich people who live in lovely oh, houses quick, by the sea. Let me go and buy yeah, a property in, in Paparomu, one right by the sea. Yeah, sea exactly. view. Sea I'll view. get a bank to lend me some money. I'll get an insurance yeah, contract. to enjoy it for 20 years. and then That's when right. And then I'll come straight back to, yeah. to you as finance minister and say, <laughs> you know, I had no I had idea. No I had no idea. I had no idea this was going to happen. And I want you to bail me out. Or I want you to build this... Big old seawall. Yeah, right, yeah, right well, at the front. The It'll be cheap. Yeah. Someone else will pay. And the, but you're right, the seawall thing, and the, and the reason why we're doing managed retreat, it's not so much a central government thing, is that local government is obliged to maintain water services, to maintain local roads, to maintain a, an existing level of infrastructure for some of these these um, properties. And local government's throwing its hands up and saying, what? <laughs> you want us, like, 67 tiny New Zealand councils to fight climate change? <laughs> Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, but and that's 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 the thing. We've got these big reforms going on at the moment. RMA, which we'll no doubt talk about climate change. Mm. We've got local government financing reform going on, and it, and the councils are in the middle of it, yeah. trying to go, ah, and then hoping to get re-elected in October. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's the, the I mean you do feel the, the councils are the ambulance at the bottom of the New Zealand cliff. Like they they have. So they have so many responsibilities, and the government gives them so few tools to raise money. To raise yeah. money. It's almost like you know, there's that this conspiracy on the left. I don't know, I mean, it's probably not an unfair conspiracy, actually, that that large parts of the U.S. state, particularly stuff like Obamacare, is sort of gutted by Republicans so that it doesn't work, and then Republicans point at it and say, "Look, it doesn't work. <laughs> this is why, this is why government yeah. is never the solution." But but you know, the 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 behind the scenes, it's sort of this 
it's obvious that it, the Republicans have set it up in such a way that it, it was designed to fail so that they can talk about it being a failure. Well, local government in New Zealand is kind of like that. You know, it's treated with such contempt by central government, and central government says, you know, this is why you can't let local government do anything, <laughs> but but it's only because it's been set up to fail. Yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, this will be an interesting challenge for the government. Their instincts are centrist, to pull power and the money and resources close to the beehive. And New Zealand has one of the most centralised states in terms of how it raises its money and how it spends its money. Mm. Most other countries, even ones our size, have local governments with the ability to get some payroll taxes, mm. sales taxes. They're often in charge of health care, education, certainly police. Yeah, I think the New Zealand Initiative did, did some work for local government New Zealand on this. And I think in New Zealand, local government accounts for about 8% of total government mm. spending, for, you know, central and local. So 8%. And in comparable countries, it's you know double digits. Mm. Could be 20, 30% in New Zealand easily if, if we let local government do a bit more. Or, you know, gave them the tools to do what we asked them to do already. I know. And meanwhile, it's hard to get sympathy for a bunch of councils when they're doing all sorts of crazy things. Oh, and that, yeah, well, that's a sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? Like, you know, so many councils behave like poorly performing PTAs, but it's because we resource them like poorly performing PTAs, so uh, you, you think. You pay, pay for monkeys. That's what, yep. Yeah, yeah it's, it's tragic. But, you know, to, to the wider point, I think, you know, massive reform is probably coming somewhere along the line, but, but you know. No, as, as one like. of the boomer adjacents, we shall work hard to, to make sure there is no change and that we get to buy more houses, and I'm happy to rent you one. <laughs> anyway, I'm uh, looking we, for a room at the we, moment. Actually, uh, it's, it's hard. Seriously, it's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. Uh, Wellington, oh, you should all move to Auckland. Yeah, there's a real shortage of people. Yeah. yeah. Hey, this has been a fun romp through the political economy. We must do this again sometime. I'd love to. Tom, Thomas, uh, really enjoyed it. You have been on a hoon. Remember, the collective noun for the kaka is the hoon. And I'm Bernard Hickey. We've been talking with Thomas Coglin from Stuff, soon to be the Herald. It has been a hoot here on the Kaka. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>